This is Cale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I want you to open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to pick it up where we left off, starting with verse 5. I just want to read this one verse here. Paul writes, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Actually, let's read the next verse too, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, this idea of the remnant, very, very important. As you might recall from our last episode, and, and Paul spoke about this in the beginning of Romans chapter 11, he gave the example of the prophet Elijah and his showdown against the false prophets of the false god, Baal. And those in the north, the northern tribes of Israel, don't forget, God's people were kind of divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and then there were the southern tribes that became known as the kingdom of Judah. Well, in the north, so many, in fact, the vast majority of the Israelites, some say, went over to the false worship of the false god, Baal. And this is around the time, and we spoke about this in our last episode once again, so grab the podcast if you missed it, when Jezebel was on the scene. Um, she was obviously a supporter of Baal and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah kind of pleads with God, and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. He says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. They're going to come and kill me. What's going to happen to me? But he says in verse 4 of Romans 11, what is God's reply to him, to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, that's why he says in this first verse that we looked at today, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So this idea of the remnant, by the way, and Han and Mitch explain in their Ignatius commentary in Romans that the, the Greek word lima means a portion or a remainder. It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant, there's always some leftovers, right? What What's going on here? This refers to God's people who are faithful, maybe when everybody else has not been faithful, people who have escaped certain death, catastrophe, sometimes divine punishment. There are a few examples in the scripture that we can point to where there's a remnant of people who made it through when the vast majority did not. Think about Noah and his family after the flood. All of sinful humanity was wiped out. God essentially started over with Noah, who became kind of a new Adam in a sense with his family. What about the sons of Jacob? And these guys were, of course, the future patriarchs of Israel. They were the ones who survived a famine which killed so many multitudes. With a little help, of course, from Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. We talked about this a lot in our Genesis series in the Faith Explained, but you can read more about that in Genesis 45. And so what's happening here is St. Paul is referencing the case of Elijah and how a lot of the northern tribes turned to this worship of Baal. But some some were faithful. And Elijah didn't know about this. God had to tell him, you don't know this, Elijah, but I know that I have for myself 7,000 men who are still faithful to me. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So this, this, this theme of the remnant comes up time and time again. Not only the, the Assyrian invasion of the northern tribes in 722 BC, but when the southern kingdom of Judah was invaded by the Babylonians and then carried off into exile in 586 BC, there was always a, a view in the prophets that God would restore this, this righteous remnant and, and bring, regather his people somehow. Isaiah 11, verse 11, Jeremiah 50, verse 20, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So all of that is kind of in the background here as Paul is, is really talking about his fellow Israelites and how the vast majority of them have rejected God's plan in Jesus Christ, his Messiah. But some have accepted. In fact, many did. Thousands did. We know this in the New Testament period. In the early church, thousands of Jews did believe in Jesus and accept Jesus as Messiah, come into the church. But we do have to admit the vast majority did not. And, and that's really what Paul is talking about here. And by the way, this, this has been going on throughout all of history, not only with Israel in the Old Covenant time, but also, don't forget, this is true in the age of the church as well. There have been so many times when corruption has entered into the church, when apostasy has entered into the church, but somehow God preserves a righteous remnant and the church is never destroyed because Jesus promised that it would last until the end of time. Cardinal Newman in the 1800s, when he was considering becoming a Catholic, before he was Cardinal, when he was in, still an Anglican, he went to Rome and he thought, my, my goodness, only, he saw all the corruption, he saw all the problems, and he said, this, this church, rather than turning him away from the Catholic faith, it made him say, this has to be from God, because it was merely a human organization, it would have stopped existing centuries ago. There's no way it could have lasted without God upholding it somehow. Does that have problems? Yes. And Pope Benedict, in our own time, prophesied about a future church that might have to get a lot smaller, a lot smaller, in order to grow stronger. This righteous remnant. So this is a theme throughout all of salvation history, and it's something St. Paul really picks up on here in Romans chapter 11. And the other thing, too, that we need to realize when we look at this he says in verse 5, the remnant is chosen by grace. And then in verse 6, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Not only is he kind of referencing something he said earlier in Romans about how many of his fellow Israelites think that they can earn their way into God's grace, God's uh, mercy by, by, by just doing good works. And many Catholics still in our own day feel the exact same way, that they can somehow earn their way into heaven. It can't be done. It has to be a work of grace. This righteous remnant throughout all of history has only existed because God has kept people faithful. God has kept this remnant faithful. It's some of them, some of them. It's nothing that they can claim their own cleverness or their own goodness. God has done this. And so we have to keep this in mind as well. All right, let's look at verse 7. Paul says this, What then? Israel failed. To obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Verse 8, as it, is, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear down to this very day. Let's look at the next verse, verse 9. And David says, let their feast become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay, so that's taken us up to the end of, of verse 10. This is, um, this is actually a really interesting uh, 
use of, of, of Paul's rabbinical skills. Paul is one of the greatest rabbis who ever lived, so brilliant. And what he uses here is something called Gezerah Sawa. What, what is this? This is an interpretive technique that's used by the rabbis where they would take certain verses of Scripture and they would look for a common word. And if they found the same word in different verses of Scripture, almost like a, a golden thread running through these, these verses, they say, aha, there's got to be a connection here. And so what Paul does here is he draws some scripture together, three different scriptures, and the word, the catch word, is eyes. So th- this, is, this is what he, he says. Really, when people can't see the truth, there's this remnant of people that stay faithful, but the rest of them, they're hardened. Now, now Paul has already talking, uh, talked about Pharaoh and the Exodus, how he hardened his heart and, and, and God allowed him to do that. There's that interplay, did God do it? Did Pharaoh do it? <laughs> God certainly allowed it, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the same has happened to many Israelites. They've hardened their hearts towards the Messiah, and God has allowed this to happen. And so this idea of hardening the heart, it's really spiritual blindness. And that's why the the catchword here in these verses that Paul is quoting is the word eyes. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So what Paul is doing here, this is also pretty awesome. Not only is he using this technique of Gezerah Sawa with the common word in all these verses, but he's invoking the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's got a verse from each section. Now, as you know, this is sort of the classical division of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus himself said this. In Luke's gospel, after the road to Emmaus, he's opening the scriptures to them. Then he appears to them, uh, to the apostles, in his resurrected body. And this is one of the things that he says to them. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be be fulfilled. So there you go. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And, and Paul knows this very, very well. So let's look at the verse that he picks from the law. And this comes from, of course, the law of Moses, one of the books of Moses. This is the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 3. God gave them eyes, and there's that word, the, the catch word, eyes. God gave them eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear down to this very day. That's his quote from the law. And, and and when did this happen, by the way? Just before the Israelites got into the promised land, and Moses himself didn't get in there. And he kind of gives them this last will and testament, this farewell speech. And he's kind of giving them a hard time because he's like, look, guys, you saw all the miracles that God did for you, how he sent the plagues, got you guys out of slavery in Egypt. And yet it never really sunk in. You, you saw all this stuff, but you, it's like you had eyes that couldn't see. Because what did you do? You, you went ahead and worshipped idols, the golden calf. You went right back to the idols of Egypt. You did all this stuff to make God angry. And so he couldn't see. You, you, didn't, you had ears that didn't really hear what he was saying to you. And, and, and this is always going pro- to be a problem. So they couldn't see. So that's the eyes. And then he's got a quote from the prophets. This is interesting. This, uh, this comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. Isaiah 29, 10 says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. A spirit of deep sleep. And has closed your eyes. There's that word again, eyes. 
the prophets and covered your heads, the seers. So he's basically saying, the Lord has closed the eyes of the prophets and covered the heads of the seers. So this is sort of an oracle of doom by the prophet Isaiah, a, a doom directed towards Jerusalem, which has kind of gone off the rails as a whole. Not that every single person had abandoned God. But he's basically saying that the prophets of the southern kingdom of Judah, their eyes have become shut. They're not really seeing what God wants. And if the leaders aren't seeing what God wants, then everybody's going to go off the rails. Now, the last thing that, that, he, that he quotes here is Psalm 69, verses 23 and 24. And, and this is where, where the Psalms come in. So he's got the law, the prophets from Isaiah, and now he's got one of the Psalms, uh, Psalms of David, of course, this is Psalm 69, verses 23 and 24. Let their own table before them become a snare. Let their sacrificial feasts be a trap. Lest their eyes be darkened. See, there's that word again, eyes. So that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. You certainly don't want your loins trembling continually. So th- this is, this is a, a beautiful, beautiful way of, of Paul stringing these, these three verses from the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms together. And what's going on here? This is where the the Davidic king is basically saying, God, I want you to drop the hammer on my enemies, especially those among my own people, Israel, who are not in favor of my divinely bestowed kingship. So that's why he says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution. Let their eyes grow dim so that they may not see. Keep their backs bent forever. I mean, it's kind of harsh. Uh, let's face it, this is going to like, you know, take out my enemies, Lord. And so this is really interesting because he mentions David and Psalm, and we know that the Messiah descends from the house of David, according to the flesh. This is something that Jesus made a big deal about uh, during his earthly ministry, and, and it's true. And this is kind of a prophecy that just as people oppose David within his own kingdom, there would be some Israelites who oppose the son of David, Jesus. They're not going to accept him as Messiah. So th- this, is some, this is how Paul explains it using Scripture. This is the way it always goes. There's always a righteous remnant, but sometimes the vast majority even go off the rails and they're not aligned with God's purposes. So that's, that's intriguing. All right, now let's go to the next section. This is, this is, he's kind of getting to the, the crux of his argument here, how God grafts the Gentiles into the church, and they should not be arrogant about this at all. So let's look at verse 11. He's talking about, uh, about Israel right now. He says, So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So this is, again, Paul at his very, very best here. 
Now, he says, God has not rejected Israel. He said, he said this in, in chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. He says, I'm an Israelite. He goes on. And so he says again, so I ask in verse 11, have they stumbled so as to fall? The fact that the majority of Israelites at the moment have not accepted Jesus as Messiah, does that mean pff, they've failed? Not at all. Not, there, there is hope for them. There is total hope for them. And then he's going to talk to the Gentiles here. And, and remember, he's writing to Rome. He's writing to Rome, where there's kind of a mixed bag. There's Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. They've all come to see Jesus as Messiah. The Gentiles are, have become a little bit more numerous because, don't forget, the Jews were all expelled from Rome. The Edict of, of Claudius, they, had, they got kicked out, and then they've come back. And, and now they've come to, to, back to the church and say, whoa, there's, there's a lot more Gentiles here than when we left. So Paul has to give, give a word to them as well, and it's just incredible uh, how he does that. So Scott Hahn says in his commentary on Romans, as Paul is talking about the, the part of Israel that has become hardened, if you will, to the truth about Jesus, he says, did they stumble so as to fall? Israel has kind of tripped. The, the majority of the Israelites have tripped and stumbled over the Messiah, the rock that makes them fall. The question is, have they been knocked out of the race entirely? To this, the apostle responds, of course not. They may have struck an obstacle on the track, but Paul remains confident that, they're, that his people are still able to regain their footing and reach the finish line. End of quote. This reminds me very much of a beautiful story from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. There was a, a runner from the UK, from Great Britain, a 400-meter uh, dash runner named Derek Redmond. Very highly ranked, very highly regarded. Tragedy unfolded, though, in his Olympic race. He, he tore his hamstring, and it was just devastating to him. And, and he could have pulled out of the race. He could have stopped running. He had every right to do so. He could barely walk, let alone run. But he bravely got up and kept going, and he was dragging himself along the track. And the crowd noticed this. The, 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 the other runners had long finished. And then a solitary figure was fighting through bodies in the crowd, in the stands, trying to get down to the track. It was Derek Redmond's father. And he convinced the security guards to let him onto the field of, 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 of athletics. And he got onto that track, and he grabbed his son, and he pulled him up, and, and together, he, 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 kind of, he, he helped his son finish the race. They were both in tears. This is a poignant moment that was witnessed by millions on television all around the world. The father takes his son, and he helps him across the finish line. They finished together. Derek Redman never got an Olympic medal, but he was, his memory was seared in the imagination of Olympic fans for generations to come. And this is what St. Paul is saying will happen with Israel that God himself will help his people to discover the Messiah, will pick them up. They may have stumbled across this truth, stumbled over this truth, but there is hope for all Israel. And as he will explain later, somehow all Israel will be saved. We'll talk about how that will happen later on in Romans on the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. But right now, we're going to dip into our Faith Explained question and answer mailbag. Let's go for it. As we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. I'll try to answer it on air. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also get your question to me by sending me a direct message 
or tagging me on Twitter, which is now known as X. My handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. Here's a question that a lot of you have, and I'm going to try to answer it for you. When did Pope Benedict predict that the church might have to get smaller in the future to get stronger? Did he predict a, a righteous remnant of the church in the future? Well, he kind of did. And he predicted this, by the way, long before he ever became Pope, before he even was a bishop, when he was simply Father Joseph Ratzinger. And it was on German radio, oddly enough, in the late 1960s, in 1969 to be exact, when he said some very, I think, prophetic words. Now, you know, he, he was very humble about this. He, he, he didn't say this is 100% going to come true. He had a bit of a disclaimer. He said this, quote, Let us therefore be cautious in our prognostications. What St. Augustine said is still true. Man is an abyss. What will rise out of these depths, no one can see in advance. And whoever believes that, that the church is not only determined by the abyss that is man, but reaches down into the greater infinite abyss that is God, will be the first to hesitate with his predictions because this na naive desire to know for sure could only be the announcement of his own historical ineptitude. End of quote. Okay, so that, that's a great quote right there from the future Pope Benedict, saying we've got to be careful with, with predictions because man can come up with a lot of crazy stuff and crazy sins in the future that we haven't even thought about yet, but, but God uh, is able to take that in stride, and he's much, much deeper than this. He's got it all in hand. Now, of course, in, in his time when he was saying these words in the late 1960s, the church was, was turbulent then as it is now. The Second Vatican Council had concluded a lot of the um, misunderstandings of the council documents had begun to take root uh, in the secular society. The whole free love movement had, had started, and people were very, very confused morally. So I want to share some more things that he said in this radio interview, German radio, Father Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict. Here's, here's what he thought was going to happen with respect to the future of the church. He said, quote, the future of the church can and will issue from those whose roots are deep and who live from the pure fullness of their faith. It will not issue from those who accommodate themselves merely to the passing moment or from those who merely criticize others and assume that they themselves are infallible measuring rods. Nor will it issue from those who take the easier road, who sidestep the passion of faith, declaring false and obsolete, tyrannous and legalistic, all that makes demands upon men, that hurts them and compels them to sacrifice themselves. To put this more positively, the future of the church, once again, as always, will be reshaped by saints, by men, that is, whose minds probe deeper than the slogans of the day, who see more than others see, because their lives embrace a wider reality, end of quote. Okay, so great stuff there. What a, what a brilliant mind, as clear and as sharp as a diamond. Pope Benedict XVI, uh, at the time, Father Joseph Ratzinger. And so he's saying, look, what's going what's gonna to really make the difference here is we need saints. And as St. Jose Maria Escrivá said, all of these world crises are really crises of saints. We need more saints. We, we've got to embrace our call to become saints. 
So let's go back to uh, the future Pope Benedict here. Here's what he said again in the late 1960s on, on German radio. He said, quote, unselfishness, which makes men free, is attained only through the patience of small daily acts of self-denial. By this daily passion, which alone reveals to a man in how many ways he is enslaved by his own ego, by this daily passion, and by the daily passion he means entering into the passion of Christ, taking up your cross daily, self-denial, unselfishness. By it alone, a man's eyes are slowly opened. And obviously this applies to women too. He sees only to the extent that he has lived and suffered. If today we are scarcely able any longer to become aware of God, that is because we find it so easy to evade ourselves, to flee from the depths of our being by means of the narcotic of some pleasure or other. Thus our own interior depths remain closed to us. If it is true that a man can see only with his heart, then how blind we are, end of quote. So this is really important. He's basically saying we've got to pick up our cross, we've got to live for others, And people want to sort of numb themselves to the pain. They don't want to sacrifice. They don't want to feel the splinters of the cross. So they, the narcotic of pleasure, he says, there's so many other ways that that, that, that people use to, to evade the truth about themselves and about God. These ways are multiplying in our own time. So what, what about this, this idea of the smaller church, the remnant, if you will? Okay. This is the last thing that he says. Quote, how does all this affect the problem we're examining? It means the big talk of those who prophesy a church without God and without faith is all empty chatter. We have no need of a church that celebrates the cult of action and political prayers. It is utterly superfluous. It will destroy itself. What will remain is the church of Jesus Christ, the church that believes in the God who has become man and promises us life beyond death. End of quote. Ooh, this is really important. Then he talks about, a hey, listen, a priest who's merely a social worker, that priest can be replaced. A psychotherapist can be hired instead or somebody else. But the priest who doesn't just stand on the sidelines, as Ratzinger says, it doesn't just watch the game, gets involved, puts himself at the disposal of human beings. He's with them in their sorrows, their joys, their hopes, their fears. That kind of priest, that's what we'll need. That's, that's what he says. And one more quote from Ratzinger. I can't resist this. He says, quote, let us go a step farther. From the crisis of today, the church of tomorrow will emerge, a church that has lost much. She will become small and will have to start afresh, more or less from the beginning. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. As the number of her adherents diminishes, so it will lose many of her social privileges. In contrast to an earlier age, it will be seen much more as a voluntary society entered only by free decision. As a small society, it will make much bigger demands on the initiative of her individual members. It will discover new forms of ministry. He goes on to say a few other things. But but the whole point here is that the church might have to grow smaller in order to be more faithful and really recapturing the original original charism of the church when, when the whole world was against her and yet she survived because of her pure faith in Jesus Christ, seeking holiness, becoming a saint and helping others to become saints as well. He said a lot more than that, but uh, this is beautiful stuff by the future Pope Benedict XVI. Okay, if you've got a question for me for our Q&A mailbag segment, you can send it to me via email, 
faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Find me again on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. I'll be back later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show, live on Relevant Radio, and 23 and a half hours from now on the next edition of The Faith Explained. God bless you, and catch you in the next one.